According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles as we get started to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9. Uh, although this is an episode that crosses all three of the Synoptic Gospels, we are in the section of Matthew from chapter 16 and verse 21 down through chapter 17 and verse 13. In both Matthew and Mark, we have a chapter transition. In Matthew, we cross from chapter 16 into chapter 17 for the Mount of Transfiguration. In Mark, we cross from chapter 8 into chapter 9 for the Transfiguration. In Luke, there is no chapter transition. It just carries across from the uh, foretelling of the death to the promise of the kingdom to the transfiguration event itself. I think I will do most of my reading this morning, though, from the Gospel of Luke. It does give the uh, the vivid, I think, the, the most vivid uh, details and descriptions. The one thing it does not have, though, is the verb for transfiguration. You get that in Matthew and Mark. So uh, we will do a little bit of flipping. Before we do any of that, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit distractions, coughing, everything else. We'll see if the Lord will get that under control. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this new day. We thank You for the the two prayer meetings we've already had this morning, Father, and for the real blessing that it's been to be able to lift up pastors and churches around this country and around the world, Father, as we bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We thank you for faithful men. We thank you for uh, their their testimony through the years in, in ministering the Word of God. I'm looking forward to this coming conference, the fellowship with these pastors, and the, the mutual encouragement that takes place, Father, the uh, sharpening of iron as iron sharpens iron, and the, the time together is just a, a real blessing. I thank you for Todd Kennedy and his graciousness in hosting these conferences. And, uh, Father, we just look to you for your faithful provision. Now, Father, today, as you've set before us a teaching opportunity, we ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask for concentration, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is a combined outline for points 47, 48, and 49 in the Galilean ministry. We're rapidly coming to the end of the Galilean ministry where our numbers will start over when we get to the next stage, uh, the, the Perean ministry and the final Judean ministry, we will reset uh, those numbers back down to one again and start the countdown all over. Um, this does follow in the immediate aftermath of uh, Peter's great confession and his great victory where uh, Christ praises him. Now comes the time where Christ has to rebuke him and uh, he has to rebuke him over uh, the denial of the cross. Uh, Jesus was preparing to uh, get his disciples mentally uh, prepared for his death, for his crucifixion. In fact, it's a uh, topic of conversation that uh, he would dearly love to have fellowship with them over and have them to truly understand its significance, to uh, truly understand the depths and degrees to which he's being tempted. And they're not going to be able to. Uh, one of the neat benefits of this transfiguration is that Moses and Elijah appearing to him in glory will actually have the uh, the perspective, the maturity, and at least in their case, the glorification to be able to encourage Christ uh, with respect to the work assignment that he is about to engage in. We'll talk about that here in a moment. All right, if you're following the outline then, we have come down through point 
4. And that's what I want to pick up on. Point 1 was the from that time. Point 2 dealt with the plan of God and the different potentialities. And we really spent time on that, reminding you of what we looked at back in Matthew chapter 11. Point 3 then, the role of the useful idiot. And I think it's one thing we can expect... We can expect the adversaries to try to discourage us. If we're in battle to keep our eyes on the Lord, if we're in a struggle to try to endure and fulfill our ministry, if there's a a temptation and a snare out there to just kind of throw in the towel and give up on God and walk away from the truth, you know, if we're under angelic conflict in those kind of testing situations, yeah, we can expect the the unbelievers, the enemies, the adversaries to to put oil on the fire and try to stoke the flames and, and really try to drive us away. But we don't expect it to come from our friends. We don't expect it to come from our fellow church members, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when they get co-opted, when they can become manipulated to become the agents of the adversary here, that becomes, uh, in my mind anyway, some of the the uh, the most insidious means by which the adversary can uh, can tempt us. And then he does that here with Peter. He uses Peter. Peter's the leader of the twelve. Peter was the oldest of the twelve. And, and clearly, um, he may not have had the personal intimacy that John had, but he undoubtedly had a leadership intimacy with, with Jesus. And, uh, and so Satan finds the tool that he thinks is going to be the most effective. Uh, Jesus kept his mind focused on the things of God. Peter was focused on the things of man. And that's the the contrast that the Lord um, lays out here. All right. Now, I'm going to pass by. Let's get to point four then. And this follows the rebuke. It follows the rebuke in Matthew and Mark and Luke. The the order of these events is always very consistent. Following his rebuke of Peter, he challenges them. Jesus challenges them. So point four, let me just read it. Jesus followed his rebuke of Peter with a challenging metaphor for all disciples to take up their cross. Now, for them, it's a metaphor. For him, it's a reality. He has told them that he's going to die. He's told them he's going to suffer. He's told them that he's going to be betrayed. He has not used the word stauros. He's not used the word cross until he gets to this point. And he does not introduce the cross that is, his own personal cross in those terms prior to this point. But he tells them that they have a cross to bear. So when we pick up our reading here, you'll note, again, going back to verse 18, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And, and uh, the warning not to tell this to anyone. And then verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Now, nowhere in that does the word cross appear. They know he's going to die. They know he's going to be the substitute for sin. They do not yet know that the method of the death, or maybe they do. Anyway, the, the text does not use the word cross, is what I'm trying to highlight. That he does not use the word cross until he turns it directly to them and says, all right, now you know I'm going to suffer. What are you guys going to do? And when he turns it to them, with them, he uses the word cross. So he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. You'll note the adverb daily there 
and follow me. I don't think the word daily is in the uh, Matthew and Mark parallels. We'll look at that here in a moment. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now, the attitude is the attitude of sacrifice, the attitude of not thinking about yourself. It's ultimately his attitude, but he wants them to develop this attitude as well. So we'll spell this out. All right. Subpoint A then. Let's get the subpoints and the details. First of all, the desire is coming after Christ or going after Christ. The verb erkamai can be rendered either come or go, depending on. It's kind of like uh, aloha, right? You go to <laughs> you go to Hawaii and they say aloha, and you're not even sure what they're talking about because it could be hello, it could be goodbye, it could be any number of things. Well, erkamai is the verb, and, and and you can translate it as coming or you can translate it as going. The context determines which. In this case, I think it's it's interesting coming after me. The uh, the prepositional phrase after uh, sometimes has a time component, sometimes has a uh, spatial reference, and in other words, a geographic component. Where is he going? Not just to the cross, but by means of the cross, where is he going? And this will become a theme from this point until his death. He'll talk about, he'll tell the Pharisees that they can't go where he's going. He'll tell, because they're unbelievers, they're not going to go to heaven, they're going to they're go to hell when they die. Um, he tells Peter that they will go where he goes, but just not yet. They've got work to do before they get there. He even rebukes some of them that they say, well, we don't know where you're going. And he says, have I been with you this long? And you still say, show us the Father. How is it you do not know? So this will become a common thread in many of these upcoming messages. But coming after me. Again, the verb is erkamai, number 2064. And it is an aorist rather than a present. I find that significant because when we get to the following verb, uh, the, the verb which means follow, uh, it is a present tense. We switch from the aorist to the present here. Uh, but coming after Christ. I want you and I to be able to start thinking more of this concept, not just simply as going to heaven when I die. Because going to heaven when I die is not necessarily following or coming after the example that Jesus Christ set. It's more than just getting there. It's how did he get there? And am I truly going to follow? Am I going to arrive? In other words, following after Christ means Ascending to glory, being presented before the Father and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. It's the presentation of the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. Or it's the appearing of the Lamb uh, having been slain before the, the Father's throne in Revelation chapter 4. All right. This is what it means to come after or to go after. And the point is, there's steps along the way. Coming after Christ or going after Christ requires following him. Now this, you want to get this down and you want to think about it. Because it's not the same thing. Coming after him or going after him is not the same as following him. There are many, they're going to be in heaven, that truthfully we have to say, you know what, they really weren't following Christ. They were regenerate, don't get me wrong. Born again, redeemed, saved, recipients of eternal life by grace through faith. But the course of their life afterwards, they were not disciples. They were not following. And this is described as a requirement. Uh, they do switch verbs here. They switch from erkamai to akalutheo. And I find that to be significant. 
There are other steps as well, because in order to be a follower, you have to be a you have to take up your cross. And then there's a third step in order to take up your cross. You have to deny yourself. And I'll, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll spell those all out for you in your B and C. So they are coming up. Um, but I just want to highlight that there is a change of verbs here. Going after Christ. Going after Christ. You and I are going to air come out. We're going to go after Christ someday. Say, could be today if we hear a trumpet. Could be 80 years from now. Say, I hope not to be here that long. Goodness, can you imagine? They're saying, oh yeah, with all the advancements in medicine and, and you know, the next generation, people are going to live a lot longer. Yuck. <laughs> all right? You know? I mean, do I, I'm not critical of medicine and I, I'd... I'll be very thankful if there's a, uh, an improved quality of life by the time I reach my 80s and 90s and whatnot. But, you know, I really don't want to be there by then. I suppose if I have to be here by then, then sure, I'm going to want to have some quality of life improvements, more so than my parents' and grandparents' generation. Let me get off that rabbit trail. Coming after Christ, whenever that day comes, Whatever day it is for me to cross that bridge, to stand before the Father, if I'm going to arrive in the same condition that he arrived in, hearing the well done, then while I'm here on earth, I have to be a follower. And so the coming, the erkamai, is an aorist. Point of time, divorce from time, an event. Aorist tense, come after. But the following is a present tense. It is a continuous action in present time. So to come to go after Christ, to stand before the Father in victory, requires continuous following of Christ in time. That's the emphasis you want to get exegetically out of, uh, out of this verse in verse 23. If you desire, and fellow is human volitional desire, that is your wish, that is your desire, that is your intent, if you so desire, if, if your volition is aligned so that you desire to be presented to the Father in victory, coming after Christ, then these are the steps you have to take. You must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and you must continuously follow. And I'm putting these in a reverse order for this reason. But the continuously following, akalutheo, you ever heard the word acolyte? You ever heard the term acolyte? If you grew up in a liturgical church or a Methodist church or a, yeah, okay, Anglican, yeah, they have these acolytes. Uh, they're followers. That comes from this verb, akalutheo, to be a follower, an imitator. Uh, you're, you're wanting to grow up in that, in that pattern. All right, so I want to be a follower. How am I going to be a follower? Second step, following Christ requires taking up a personal cross. Following Christ requires taking up a personal cross. See, the imperative to follow me it follows the, the expectation there of the verb to take up. Take up his cross daily. Now, I call it a personal cross because of the personal pronoun his that's in that verse. You must take up your cross. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. God the Father is not asking you to take up the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not qualified. I'm not qualified. We would have no 
how would we even think of starting that ministry? That's not our role. But we do have a cross. We do have a role. We have a sacrificial attitude that has to be willing to uh, be faithful unto death. The attitude of Job that says, though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust in him. And if that's not your attitude, you've not yet taken up your cross. When Jesus Christ took up his cross, there was a road. And the end of that road was Golgotha. Suffering and shame and anguish, certainly. But the end of that road was obedience to the plan of God the Father and the conclusion of the physical journey on this earth. That's what we're expected to take up. And we're expected to take it up daily. Now, it is personalized. Taking up a personal cross. Obviously, as we've studied in the past, there are different gifts, different ministries, different effects. Your cross is clearly going to relate in some fashion or another to your giftedness or to your minister, to the effects that he has for you to bear. But again, it's the attitude that you are willing to be sacrificial in your thinking, to lay down your life if that's what's expected. Now, are we going to be all or all of us going to be martyrs? No. Very few. God sovereignly chose to have you and I born in a land of prosperity, a land of relative safety, a land of blessing, a land where at least up till now Christians are not hunted down and persecuted. I mean, yeah, we're criticized and demeaned and ridiculed, but goodness, that's what's that? We're, we're the softest. It's going gonna, it's gonna to break my heart to watch the, the pathetic things that believers whine about at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> and then the true heroes that step up from China and and uh, Egypt and these places that have truly been persecuted. Well, run with endurance the race set before you. Carry the cross that he designs. Now, there's another step that precedes this, and this is why I'm taking it in this reverse order, because there is an activity that has to precede taking up the cross, and that's the denial of self. Taking up our cross requires a denial of self. The reason why... Most believers are not followers of Christ is because they're not taking up their cross. And the reason why is they're not denying themselves. They're fixated on selves. Their whole orientation is self-centered. This is what has to be renewed through the renewing of our mind in Romans chapter 12. Because if we're not transformed, we're conformed. You familiar with that text? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And we're commanded, do not be conformed to this world. What's that? Selfishness. This whole world, you can summarize this whole cosmos philosophical system of selfishness. Everything's around me. Think about it. It's just, a, it's just an extension of Satan's five I wills, right? I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Everything that this whole fallen world is patterned after the rebellion of our adversary. And it's all wrapped up in self. And yet when Jesus Christ came to this earth and emptied himself, the whole orientation was not self, it was on the Father. That's what allowed him to empty himself. That's what allowed him to achieve the victory in his three and a half years of ministry. He went to the cross not thinking about himself, thinking about you and I, thinking about his Father. So um, these are the steps. Now, A, B, and C are in reverse order from how it appears here in verse 22. But I wanted you to see how the requirements build so he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, here are the steps. First step, you've got to deny yourself. And if you can't cross that bridge, forget everything else that follows. 
Forget taking up your cross. A self-centered person will not take up his cross. Because you're looking at that and you're thinking of yourself and saying, I don't want that. (laughs) That looks painful. Uh, that, That looks unpleasant. And if you don't pick up your cross, you're not following after Christ. See, how many believers, they want to be imitators of Christ, but they're thinking millennial. Right? They're thinking glory. They're thinking, oh yeah, I want, to, I want to judge the angels, 1 Corinthians 6. I want to be seated on a throne, Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to reign with Christ. And they're forgetting the first half of that verse, that if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. Right? First class condition, if and we do, we do suffer with him, we will also reign with him. So, being a follower of Christ is not millennial because we're not in the millennium yet. We're in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Being a follower of Christ means taking up your cross. And denying yourself. Alright, point five then. I think the other aspects on this, I didn't really expand on them very much. The um, uh, losing and finding and saving and the things that, that come in here. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. The idea is, in, take everything you know about salvation in phase one salvation, okay? Believing in Christ and receiving eternal life. And apply that now in phase two salvation. You know, could you accomplish your own redemption? Of course not. You had to deny yourself and accept his offer and, and by grace you're saved through faith. Similar concept here in the Christian walk, this, this salvation in view here is in your phase two salvation, being delivered from the, the power of sin, being delivered from the snares and the temptations of sin. Now, are you going to achieve the victory in the angelic conflict through yourself? No, not for one minute, not for one, one smidgen, any more than you could have redeemed yourself. And so, again, you deny yourself, you look to him for his salvation, you recognize the grace provision that's there. And you obtain the grace provision that's there. Same mechanism, you obtained it in phase one salvation, phase two salvation. You you appropriate it by means of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. All right. So, uh, yeah, if you're going to try to save your soul, if you're going to try to use human effort to walk in the light and to uh, deliver yourself from sin temptations or from addictions or from whatever, I mean, goodness. There's a whole industry out there on self-help. You know, by definition, that's that's so wrong. (laughs) How can we help ourselves? The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. What what kind of help am I going to find there? All right. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. And we... Oh, wait a minute. I missed point D. How about that? Subpoint D. Denying self means we identify the Savior and the saved for all three phases of salvation. Don't mix up the Savior with the saved. None of us are the Savior. For phase one salvation, for phase two salvation, and ultimately speaking, for phase three salvation as well. When we're saved from the presence of sin. When God saves us out of this fallen world and brings us to glory. Even the final application of salvation where we're delivered into glory. Do we do that? No. So denying self. Denying self means we identify the Savior and the saved. And I remember, you know what? Today, it's God my Savior. 
That's who I abide in. That's who I walk in. That's who I'm entrusted to. Because it's not about me. Christ, what did Christ say? Or, or what did Paul say? He says, not I. He says, and I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Got to understand that. All right, now we can get to point five. The reality of the delayed crown creates the necessity of the present cross. The reality of the delayed crown creates the necessity of the present cross. We see it in Matthew and Mark. The verses indicated. We see it here in Luke, Luke nine twenty six and twenty seven. In Matthew, it's Matthew sixteen verses twenty seven and twenty eight. In Mark, it's Mark eight thirty eight and Mark nine one. The unfortunate chapter division there. And in Luke, it's Luke nine twenty six and twenty seven. Reading from Luke, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes. Notice, when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is something else very different, and I think it's pivotal. Because whatever teaching he's given them prior to this on the kingdom... It hasn't been using words like coming. Everything up till now has used terms like at hand. John the Baptist says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ himself preached that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now he has started to tell them about the death, telling them about the rejection, telling them about his uh, suffering. And now he mentions that he's coming. That he's coming. Realize how extraordinary that is? Because he's still there with them. He hasn't left yet. He's still there and he's talking about when I come. Clearly that means he has to go before he can come. Because we're all here together. I mean, like here we are together. We're sitting in this room here on Woodrow Avenue. And you're all here and I'm here. Now if I talk about when I come... What do you mean? You're already here. Yeah, but I'm coming again. And he describes this when he says, when the Son of when he comes in his glory. When he was here in first advent, was that in glory? No, he laid aside his privileges. He laid aside his glory. He came in humility, humiliation, born in the manger. In the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So he uses the idea of coming, which, again, understands that before he can come, he has to go. It's a necessity. The necessity of the delayed crown creates the necessity of the present cross. And so he has an attitude that's willing to take up this cross. And he's trying to instill this in the disciples that they have to have the attitude to take up the present cross. All right, and then we get to this promise. But I say to you truthfully... There are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And there are so many people that do so many goofy things with that. Let me just simplify things here today. Uh, are, you, are you with me? Are you looking at verse 27? You see the promise? Now read the next verse. <laughs> All right? Because that fulfills it. 
The idea that, you know, that they, some of them had to live to see the kingdom come in. Well, guess what? They all died. All 12 of these guys died. And then beyond the 12, the disciples he was speaking to died in the first century. All right. John, John probably crossed over into the second century in 100 AD and 101 AD. And by the time he finally died, but they all died. The kingdom of God was not brought to this earth yet. Still has it. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting to see the kingdom of God manifest on the earth. The kingdom of God is presently in its mystery state and it's presently in, in heaven, not yet revealed on the earth. And yet he made them the promise. Some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And there they saw the kingdom the transfiguration is their view of the kingdom. And that's what we get to under point six. The transfiguration episode is the kingdom preview for the most intimate disciples. It's only three of them, Peter, James, and John. The transfiguration episode is the kingdom preview for the most intimate disciples. And I think there is a significance to that. All of the disciples ultimately will get there. When will they get there? They'll get there when they get there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Some of you are still writing. I'll let you finish the point. Point six. Point six. The transfiguration episode is the kingdom preview for the most intimate disciples. Matthew 17 verses 1 through 13. Mark 9 verses 2 through 13. Luke 9 28 through 36. And here you really see where the chapter divisions break and different things. And to the previous point, it was all in Matthew 16, and we reserve Matthew 17 for this point. In Mark, it actually straddled the chapter division between, on the last point and point five, we straddled Mark 8 and Mark 9. We pick up here with Mark 9, verses 2 through 13. And in Luke, there is no chapter division. It's all included in, in chapter 9. Chapter divisions are official anyway. We can thank a medieval Catholic monk for these chapter breakdowns. All right. It's the kingdom preview. In all three synoptic gospels, there is a promise stated. And in all three synoptic gospels, after the promise is stated, Six days goes by, or Luke's, Luke uses the phrase some eight days, which is about eight days, which is an idiom to show, you know, virtually a week. It's not to say that Luke's incorrect. He used an idiom as opposed to the specific reference that Matthew and Mark give. It's not a contradiction. It's an idiom. But he takes along Peter, James, and John, and he fulfills the promise. They're going to see the kingdom. Now, unlike the rest of the disciples, the other nine, and you and I, and Everybody else, we have to wait to get there. We'll get there when we get there. But they got a preview. They actually got to see it. And depending on how you think your way through this, either they were uh, transported through time or some kind of time boundary was broken down because Moses and Elijah are also present. And Moses and Elijah are already in glory. So uh, Moses and Elijah are already on the far side of what we would call second advent. 
we're still on the near side of second advent. Moses and Elijah were on the far side of second advent. So either Peter, James, and John were brought forward to view this, or somehow Moses and Elijah were brought back, or both. We don't know how time works. <laughs> but in some demonstration of power on this mountaintop, Christ is glorified, Christ is transfigured, metamorphosized into a light uh, emanating being here. We'll see this. And uh, Moses and Elijah are not transfigured, but they are in glory, we're told. All right. So let's break it down. Let's just read. Um, and for this, we can read through all the Gospels. So I'll go to Matthew 17. Mark, the servant, talks about the laundry. We'll get to that here in a moment. But Matthew, the king, gospel of the kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. It's a passive verb, metamorpho, and we'll give that to you here in a moment. And his face shone like the sun. There's a light-producing benefit there. And that's something that we'll see in the millennium. We'll see in the fullness of time as well. And his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, they appeared to them, but they were speaking to him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, uh, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This is Peter. Now, Peter's probably, I've got to be fair to Peter here. He's, he's, he is a knucklehead. I'm, I'm, I beat up on Peter quite a bit. But given that the last thing Jesus said to him was, get behind me, Satan, I suspect that Peter was very, very eager to try to get back in good terms, right? To uh, come up with something positive, to really be, you know, do what he can to impress the Lord. So where does this idea come from? Anyway, we'll talk about this. You know, people get crazy ideas just out of the blue, left field or something. You know, hey, I got an idea. Let's do a triple tabernacle thing here. Um, you know, generally speaking, if that if it didn't come from the Bible, if it didn't come from Scripture, if it didn't come from divine guidance, if it's just your crazy wild idea, it may not be much value in it. And so, while he was still speaking, he gets interrupted. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of a cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when's the last time that happened? It happened at the baptism. Yeah, it happened at the baptism. It's happening again here. It'll happen a third time as well. All right? So uh, the disciples heard this. They fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them, touched them, and said, Get up, do not be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So however long they were out, uh, by the time Jesus revived them, Moses and Elijah had returned to uh, their time frame where it was they came from. All right, over to Mark. Mark chapter 9. Some people also, by the way, think that this passage is proof that uh, the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 are Moses and Elijah. Well, that's a problem because this is a preview of the kingdom. It's not a preview of the tribulation. And uh, these guys are already in glory. And the two witnesses of Revelation get killed. How do you kill somebody who's in glory? So, 
I do not accept the uh, transfiguration as having value in describing the uh, tribulation. It's describing the kingdom. All right, Mark 9. Mark presents the gospel of the servant. Many of his observations are servant-oriented, and we see that here. We have the promise in verse 1. You're going to see the kingdom. Um, Verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. (laughs) You know? They didn't have the tide, high-energy, whitening, bleach detergent. And it like... (laughs) You've got to love it, though. God breathed and inspired laundry uh, observations from Mark 9.3. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Again, appeared to them, but talking to him. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I like this. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Let me tell you something here. This is extra, extra credit, no charge, but... If, if you really don't know what to say, don't say it. Yeah, yeah, just shut your mouth. And especially if, if you don't know what to say because you're kind of afraid of what's going on, even, even more reason. Just don't say it. And a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's the one that's got something to say. He knows what he's going to say. He's not terrified of saying it. So all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. All right, then over to Luke, Luke 9. Luke mentions the prayer. See, he got him up on the mountain and then it didn't just immediately trigger, right? Like, okay, we walked up the mountain, here we are, we're at the top, boom, and here's the trigger. No, gets to the mountaintop and it's time for a prayer meeting. And they pray. And uh, these other guys fall asleep. They were the biggest sleepers so uh some eight days after these things he took along peter james john went up the mountain to pray and while he was praying the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming so we've got a we've got a description taking place here we don't actually have the verb metamorpho but we still have a description of what's taking place and behold two men were talking with him they were moses and elijah who appearing in glory in uh, I guess doxa or doxa, off the top of my head, in glory, the date of case, in glory. They're not, uh, see, some people would say, well, you know, Elijah never died. So he could, uh, you know, he could be one of those witnesses in Revelation and he could still die. Yeah, but Moses did die. We're told that Moses died. We're told that the Lord buried him. So you might say something about Elijah there and Elijah is coming Elijah will have a role in the in the tribulation because he's the forerunner he's the herald but that's not to say that he's one of the two witnesses and here we see that he's in glory and um, appearing in glory they were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem You know, this is what he wanted to fellowship over with the disciples. He wanted to be able to have this encouragement and this fellowship and this doctrinal discussion with his disciples and they didn't have the capacity to deal with it. 
He is explaining these things to them, and all he gets out of them is, Oh, no, God forbid it, Lord, this should never happen to you. And he has to say, get behind me, Satan. Now he has an opportunity for fellowship, and he's fellowshipping with a glorified Moses and Elijah. And so uh, it's interesting as he and these three sleepers, we'll see they're sleeping here in a minute, um, they come forward into time into the kingdom. Moses and Elijah are there. Can you imagine? Just imagine, here you are, you're minding your own business. And somebody from the past pops in, right? Anybody, any historical character from the past. And think about what you could discuss. You know, Julius Caesar walks in and he's not yet crossed the Rubicon. But you and I know all about it. Would you discuss it with him? You know? <laughs> um, Robert E. Lee pops in and, and George Pickett has not yet made his charge. You know, would you discuss it with him? You say, by the way, there's nothing wrong with Pickett's charge. The real problem is Longstreet. Deal with him, right? Anyway, what are they discussing with Jesus? For them, they're already glorified. They're already in the kingdom. But here's Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And uh, we're told that what they're discussing is his departure, his exodus. And um, I can just imagine what a great encouragement uh, this is. Remember, he kept his eyes fixed on the joy set before him. Endure the cross, despise the shame. All right. Point A, Jesus, was, Jesus promised some of his disciples a vision of his kingdom. He didn't say that they would enter into it. He said they would see it. Jesus promised some of his disciples. He said, there are some of you here, not all of you. Clearly, he's not going to take the betrayer in there. But even eight more of them aren't going in there, right? Only three. And it's common to all three records. It's Matthew 16, 28, Mark 9, 1, and Luke 9, 27. All three gospel records record the promise. Some of you will see. Visually examine. He promises them a vision. Not a participation, not an entrance. An observation. A vision of His kingdom. He then took Peter, James, and John. Those were the sum. Those are the ones that He took. By the way, they're going to be the same ones that he'll take into the garden the night before the cross. Peter, James, and John, the three that were the closest. Those three plus Andrew make up the inner third of the twelve disciples. We've, we've broken down the, the Decapostolog in the past, the listing of the twelve apostles, and they're broken down into three sets of four. Peter, James, John, and Andrew make up that top set, the inner closest set of four. All right, so Peter, James, and John are taken to the high mountain. And by the way, we don't have the mountain named. No gospel record actually names which mountain this is. And so there is, uh, that's opened some questions. Some people, uh, there are different candidates out there now. Not too far from Capernaum, not too far from Galilee, but maybe on the eastern side. You know, there's different opinions on this. Doesn't matter. 
Jesus was transformed. Metamorpho. Metamorpho. Like our English word metamorphosis, like the caterpillar that goes through the metamorphosis into the butterfly. Now, it is significant because it's a passive voice. He did not do this. It was done to him. He did not transform himself. The Father transformed him, metamorphosized him. He also was not, um, it wasn't permanent because clearly when the vision was over, it was back to normal again. And he said, okay, let's get going. Let's come down off the mountain now. So it was a temporary event. It was a passive voice. The father did it to him, metamorphosized him only for this event. As he brought him and the three disciples forward to the kingdom era. Jesus was transformed, passive voice. Remember, he can't be fully glorified until he's obedient to the cross. He cannot receive this glory until he's victorious in, in, uh, at the Father's throne. Now, sometimes it's thought that Moses and Elijah are also transfigured. They're not. The verb metamorpho does not apply to Moses and Elijah. The expression in, in fact, Matthew and Mark don't even mention any kind of glory either. They just mention Moses and Elijah showing up. But in Luke 9.31, we do have the phrase in glory. And it is applied to Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke to Jesus concerning his imminent exodus. The term is exodus in Luke 9.31. Departure. The way out. His departure from physical life is about to take place. He's within a year of the cross. He's about to make a departure from mortality to put on immortality. And that's what they were able to discuss. And this is um, the... uh, Am I in the right verse here? Yes. Which he was about to accomplish. It's an active verb. It is his departure. He must fulfill in obedience the plan, the design, the race that the Father has set. The finish line is the departure. And he has to be obedient to that. All right. And that's what they're discussing. You know, think about what we fellowship over. What is truly biblical, Christian, intimate, spiritual, koinonia fellowship? If not, the hardships, the things we're going through, the cross that we're bearing. The denying of self, the taking up the cross, and following after Jesus Christ. That's the fellowship. You know, we could sit around and talk about the Cowboys and Monday Night Football. But you know what? I can do that with unbelievers. True fellowship with believers. How about discussing the uh, taking up of the cross and the laying down your life and the sacrificial attitude and the work assignment that he's given? There's the fellowship that can take place. Moses and Elijah had that capacity. I think this is a big clue for what are we going to do for all eternity and why, why is the Father bringing many sons to glory? Why does He want us to grow up? The Father has no plan to populate the, the third heaven, the throne room of God with a bunch of spiritual babies. Why would He want to fellowship with a bunch of babies forever? You can't fellowship with a baby. 
You can go goo-goo over a baby and play with a baby, and they're cute, but you expect them to grow up. And it's the adult son that can have the intimate fellowship, not the infant. All right, so the disciples then are going to wake up in time to see the display. Yeah, I didn't read as far as Luke 9.32 to find out that they actually fell asleep during the prayer meeting. They went up on the mountain. He said, you know, you're going to see something great. Let's start praying. They start praying, but they weren't all that excited about seeing something great, so they fell asleep. Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. <laughs> like, oh, wow, what did I miss? <laughs> you know, must have nodded off there for a minute. Look who showed up. And the thing is, they knew immediately that it was Elijah and that it was Moses. How did they know Moses? You know, they're, they're 1,400 years separated from Moses. And they're, you know, 800 years separated from Elijah. 900 years separated from Elijah. How do they know these guys? Part of the resurrection glory is we have that identification with one another. And uh, so they wake up in verse 32. <laughs> fully awake. Yeah, you would imagine. Right? There you were asleep and you wake up and here's all this glowing light and Jesus glowing and glorified Moses and Elijah. And you're like, wow. All right. That's scarier than the Lunesta commercials. Have you seen those? That nuclear glowing yellow but the butterfly, what's that? Have you ever seen those Lunesta commercials? You get this glowing yellow butterfly. I can tell you why these people can't sleep. <laughs> got this nuclear butterfly flying into their house. I wouldn't, I wouldn't sleep either. So Peter and James and John, they, they fell asleep in prayer meeting. They wake up. And standing before them is Moses and Elijah, and they're fellowshipping with Jesus Christ over his coming departure. The very line of conversation they weren't very comfortable with. And this is what they're talking about. Well, Peter, of course, wants to interrupt the conversation and uh, says, you know, stop talking about that Exodus departure stuff. Let's, let's, uh, let's get religious. Let's start a building program. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Point F. Peter came up with a triple tabernacle plan. But God the Father silenced that stupid idea immediately. God didn't even let him finish a sentence. He cut him off and said, Peter, shut up. Three tabernacles. What is that? What kind of a stupid idea is that? The tabernacle was patterned after the heavenly reality. You want to do three of them now? Patterned after what? And why would Moses get a tabernacle? Moses built the first tabernacle. Why would Elijah get a tabernacle? What are they? The celebrity of the universe is Jesus Christ. And these two understand that. And the, Peter, just listen to Jesus. Instead of coming up with your own plan about what you're going to do to impress God? How about if you just close your mouth and listen to the one God really is impressed with? God loves His Son. Listen to Him. He's the one with a plan. And He's going to build a temple. But it's not going to be on this earth. It's going to be a temple of the bride. It's going to be the, the living temple of living stones. And Peter himself is going to be a, a stone in that temple. Peter came up with a triple tabernacle 
plan. I was going to, I meant to thesaurus that word plan. I wanted to come up with another T in there, a triple, ta- triple tabernacle something plan. God said, no, dumb idea, just close your mouth. Listen to Jesus, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> something else. So, um, again, the heavens opened. Three times, the father bears witness three times to his son at the baptism, at this event, the transfiguration, and then in the garden. All right, three times he testifies to his son. And finally, we've got an aftermath. Let's wrap this up in Matthew 17. There's a follow-up message on the way down the mountain. We get out of Matthew 17, 9 through 13. And this is good. I was hoping to get through this before... uh, the end of the hour, because we have next week off. After this incident, the disciples will be able to resolve their John the Baptist versus Elijah confusion. It's been bugging them for some time. Now they're going to be able to get an answer. They're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that reminds me. <laughs> right? They're walking down the hill and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Elijah, he was just here, right? Why do the scriptures say Elijah has to come first? So it jogged their memory. All right. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. They have to keep this whole episode top secret until he's in glory. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do they say that? Those other teachers. Well, because Isaiah chapter 40, Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 4 is scripture. Elijah is coming. And he answers and says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Okay? We went forward in time and we saw Elijah already in glory in the kingdom. I promised you, you would see the kingdom. When Elijah comes, though, he is a forerunner. He is a herald. The kingdom has not yet come. You haven't seen that yet, but he's on his way. But I say to you, now remember the language of but I say to you, the but I say to you does not cancel out everything that came in front of it, right? Where, you know, you have been told to not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lust has committed adultery in her heart, right? You've been told do not commit murder, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart, you've committed murder. Okay. When Jesus uses the but I say to you language, he's not canceling out everything. He's adding to it and giving a greater depth. And that's what he does here. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That is true. Don't cancel that out. He's on his way. He's the herald of second advent. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then light bulb comes on. And they understood that he'd spoken to them about John the Baptist. That's why John the Baptist was the herald. Yes and no. Yes, he was the herald. Yes, he was the forerunner. Yes, he was Elijah because he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And yet, no, he did not fulfill the forerunner mission. The nation rejected him. The nation rejected the Christ. The nation put him to death and they're going to put Jesus to death. The first advent is giving away now. There will be a second advent. But see, prior to this all happening, did anybody know that there were two advents? No. 
Who knew that there were going to be two Advents? Only God. Yeah, only only God in his plan knew that there were going to be two Advents. And when Jesus is walking the earth, is he tapping into omniscience to know that there's two Advents going to happen? No. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And think about the what-if scenario in which Israel accepts their king. And they humble themselves and they repent. And they listen to the forerunner. And they... They, they come for baptism. They identify with the coming kingdom. They forsake their sin. They, they prepare, they humble their heart to where it's not only the kids that are laying down the palm branches singing Hosanna to the son of David. It's everybody. The religious leaders, the priesthood, the adults, the elders. Well, we know that doesn't happen. But what if? Okay, That's the key in that the, the understanding of this rejection and the understanding of the delayed crown brings about here this necessity of the present cross. All right. So they're able to resolve it. Now they understand why it's John the Baptist. Now they understand what John the Baptist was there for. And why, when John first started his ministry, the Pharisees went and quizzed him. And they said, are you Elijah? And he said, no. So I'm not Elijah. And yet, turns out, Yes, so to speak. <laughs> All right. Anyway, this is, this is the glorious way. Only the Father can put together a, a plan that has yes and no at the same time where it is perfectly fulfilled and is perfectly... Sovereignty is never thwarted no matter what volition does. It is just a beautiful, beautiful plan. And this is where the adversary can't handle it. Satan thinks he can. He says, I'll be like the Most High God. He says, I got a great plan. And then, so the Father says, all right, tribulation is your time. Restraint is lifted. Put your plan into motion. And he unveils his Antichrist. And he rules the world. And he does all these things. But what he can't handle is human volition. And his plan starts to fall apart. And he's got a kingdom divided against himself. And there's armies from the east that are invading. And Antichrist is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm the man of peace. And all of the plan of Satan is thwarted. Because he put a plan into effect, a brilliant design as far as he was concerned, but volition just smashed it. <laughs> and, and the Father is just, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He says, you think you can create a plan like I can create a plan? And you have seven years to rule this world and it's all falling apart halfway through? So, um, it's, a, it's a glorious thing. Now, the Father has a plan. Sovereignty is accomplished. The divine decrees are fulfilled. Some of you are reading the divine decrees this week in uh, Schaefer's Systematic Theology. The divine decrees are absolutely fulfilled. And yet, all the variables of, uh, of a volitional universe come into play. And the Father knows them all. He knows every timeline, every consequence, every decision, every aftermath, every outcome. He is John the Baptist, if you care to accept it. I say to you that Elijah already came. All right. This wraps up. There's a lot more, but like I say, I'm out of town next week. We're going to have a two-week break. We'll come back um, after uh, the Spokane Conference and pick it up with episode number 50 in the Galilean ministry. If you have any questions, uh, save them for tonight. We'll have questions tonight at 730. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We rejoice in how faithful you are. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.